gracious and loving God, we thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. As we come together to study the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus, we ask your blessing upon us that we would learn something new today and that in learning we would be changed and equipped to follow you more faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then Moses answered, but suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it and it became a staff in his hand so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, what if your brother Aaron, the Levite, I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. On the way at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. 
But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, truly, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. All right. So as we get to Exodus chapter four, Moses's wrestling with the call of God continues. Like many people who are called to do great things for God, we often object and we try to wiggle out and Moses is no different. And, you know, his legitimate question is, suppose they don't believe me. And, and I think this is a real fair objection because Moses has not been around them. It's been a long time that he's been in Midian. This is really going to come out of nowhere from the perspective of of the Israelites. And so the Lord basically says, well, show me what's in your hand. And Moses says, a staff. And so here we have Moses with the shepherd's staff. And whereas Moses's day job is to be a shepherd in the land of Midian, um, his real shepherding is to God's people. And of course, Moses, the shepherd of God's people, is a type of the one to come who once said, I am the good shepherd. And so Moses has the shepherd's staff and he is ready to shepherd God's people. And God says, throw it on the ground. Now, this word throw, a better translation of the Hebrew is fling. And the reason I point that out is because it is the exact same word that Pharaoh uses when instructing the Egyptians on what to do with Hebrew males, fling them into the Nile. And so the flinging of babies into the Nile, which is a demonstration of Pharaoh's power, will be contrasted with the flinging of the staff onto the ground, which is a demonstration of God's power. And so a showdown between God and Pharaoh is being set up. And the question is, who has the ultimate authority and who will ultimately fling the other into submission. I mean, that's kind of all in the subtext with this very interesting word fling. And so Moses flings his shepherd's staff onto the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses draws back because that's a scary thing. And God says, grab it by the tail, which is the most dangerous place to grab a venomous snake by the tail. So God says, grab the snake by the most dangerous part. Basically, God's way of saying, you got to do that thing that scares you. You have to rely not on your own power, but on my power. Uh, this is not some game where you figure out the safe way to tame the snake yourself, but I'm going to demonstrate my power and my mastery over the snake. And so grab it in the most dangerous spot because this is going to be about my power. I also just want to point out the motif of mastery over the snake. This theme was introduced in Genesis chapter 3, right? Whenever the snake leads Adam and Eve to rebel against the command of God, and uh, there is that curse over the snake, and 
this foreshadowing of the victor over the snake who will crush its head, but at the same time will suffer a wound. So this victor over the snake is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter three. And of course, we believe this ultimately points to Jesus, but here is Moses still kind of swimming in that same motif as one who has authority over the snake. And this sign is given so that people may believe. And that verse reminds me of the final verse in chapter 20 of John's gospel, where the author says, these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. This idea of signs and believing is a really important motif in scripture. But practically speaking for the narrative, Moses does have to give them some reason to believe that God is with him and God knows that. And so here we begin with all the signs and wonders that will ultimately unfold. And once we get into the whole, you know, making your hand leprous and then curing it again, or having the water from the Nile become bloody, these are just more signs and wonders to demonstrate God's power. And so Moses listens to the Lord and he sees all these signs. And Moses's initial objections, I think, were kind of valid. You know, who am I? He asked in chapter three, and he's right. I mean, Moses is a runaway murderer who's just kind of living as a shepherd in the land of Midian. Who am I? It's a good objection, but God says, I'll be with you. Moses says, well, no one's going to believe me. And God says, well, here are some signs and wonders. And so as we go on with each objection, God's going to get a little bit more and more frustrated with Moses because Moses will no longer be raising valid objections. He'll just be trying to run away from God. And so Moses basically says, I'm not a good speaker, which again is a, a ridiculous argument, right? He has just thrown his staff down and watched it transform into a living reptile and then picked it back up. But his objection is, I'm not very eloquent. And so Moses is really trying to, to wiggle out of this. God reminds him, who is it that gives speech to mortals? It's me. I'm the one who will be with your mouth. But um, um, so you need to trust in that. And then in verse 13, Moses still says, oh, Lord, please send someone else. And so Moses is out of excuses. And often whenever God is calling us to do that dangerous thing, to pick up the metaphorical snake by the tail, to go to Pharaoh, you know, we have all our excuses. And, um, you know, you come talk to somebody like me and uh, or to a professional or to a good friend, and you realize that your excuses for not doing that hard thing you're supposed to do, which is the call of God, are all silly, and that you need to get past your excuses. And so what is our final objection Lord, just not today, not me, you know, call somebody else. I, I just don't want to do it. And so then the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. And God asked, what of your brother Aaron, the Levite? Uh, and the reader would be tempted to ask, what of him? I've never heard of Aaron, right? This is the first time that Aaron is introduced into the narrative. Uh, Aaron is not mentioned before chapter four. We're told he's a Levite. We're told Moses is a Levite earlier. And so that's going to be important because Aaron will be the first priest. Um, but Aaron is then uh, the one who gets to go with Moses 
to uh, confront Pharaoh so uh, Moses does not have to go alone. And we're told that when Aaron sees Moses, that Aaron's heart will be glad. And we've had some conversations, you know, kind of speculating how much contact did Moses have with his family? Did he ever sneak out of the palace to kind of visit with his mom and Miriam and Aaron? Uh, did they have any contact after Moses left and went to Midian? Very interesting questions. But uh, we're told that Aaron's going to be glad to see Moses, and that would imply that the two brothers know each other and that somehow there was some contact between them. Um, and so they go out to meet each other, and Moses has the staff of God in his hand. Uh, but before he does that, he goes to his father-in-law Jethro because this is a traditional culture, and you don't just announce, I'm leaving the family. You go to get the patriarch's blessing, and Jethro is a good man. Uh, he is a friend of God, and that continues to uh, be displayed throughout uh, this story, and Jethro sends him off in peace. Um, and the Lord says to Moses, those who were seeking your life are now dead, basically tries to tell Moses it's safe to go. And so Moses takes his wife and his sons. Um, we didn't know that Moses had multiple sons until now, by the way. We knew he had a son, but Moses has fathered other children. They all hop on a donkey and off they go. Um, and the Lord says to Moses, um, make sure when you get to Egypt, you do all the signs that I told you to do, but I want you to know I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's not going to let the people go. This is a very interesting thing. God sends Moses uh, with a very clear task. And then God tells Moses, your task will not be successful, at least not at first because I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And that raises some very interesting questions about free will. Is Pharaoh just a puppet where God is pulling the strings? Um, is that what's happening here? Or is something else going on and uh, this is just language and, and God is more uh, foreknowing than foreordaining? It, it raises some interesting questions about the display of God's power and how much agency Pharaoh has, how much agency we have. Um, this story kind of just asks those interesting questions. Uh, but then God uh, declares that Israel is his firstborn son. This is going to be a very important motif in the Old Testament and the New. So for those of you who were part of the Hebrew study we did, we recall that uh, we all are declared to be the firstborn son of God in the book of Hebrews. Um, we're coming off the first Sunday in Lent, where Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan, and he is victorious where the Israelites were not, and they're 40 years in the wilderness. And what's happening there? Well, Jesus is representing Israel. He is um, going on their journey for them as God's firstborn son to be faithful where they could not be faithful. Um, and so Jesus uh, then becomes God's firstborn son, and all of Israel is somehow bound up in him and in his journey. But most important of all, with respect to this narrative, we're setting up the 10th plague. Because what has Pharaoh done but oppressed God's firstborn son? And so what will be the final plague 
but the firstborn of Egypt um, being struck down, being judged. And so we have a little bit of a foreshadowing of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You mess with my firstborn, I'll mess with yours. That's going to be the final plague. But here Israel is established as God's child, God's firstborn. And this doctrine of election, which is a prominent theme in the book of Exodus, is then um, reinforced with this statement. Okay, verses 24 through 26. You know, so off they go. The story's just moving along just fine. Everything's wonderful. And then God says, you know what? Let me just go ahead and kill Moses. What? Where did that come from? And Zipporah gets wind of it. She circumcises her son, touches Moses's feet, kind of waves the bloody foreskin in the face of the deity. And somehow this saves everybody's life. Um, so what's happening here? Well, if we're going to do like source criticism and historical criticism, a lot of people think this is a very archaic uh, piece of scripture that kind of got sandwiched in. Um, there's a little bit of that going in there, uh, but, but, you know, my interest is not source criticism. It's really more canonical criticism and asking the question, what is the role of this story in terms of moving everything forward? And so there's just a few interesting things happening here. So remember, Moses is married to Zipporah, a Midianite woman, and, uh, thus, uh, his sons are Gentiles right? They are not part of the covenant people. Uh, they have not been brought in. And so uh, we have the wrath of God perhaps kindled against those who are not part of the covenant, right? And uh, the sons must be brought in via circumcision. That's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider, which is very provocative, and I'm not saying I have an opinion really either way, is it possible that Moses himself is not circumcised? Um, now, E.V. made a wonderful point uh, on Sunday that, of course, Moses was circumcised. Moses was able to grow up with his mother to be uh, fed and, and raised before he went off to the palace. Of course, they circumcised him. But then I think someone else in the group countered with an equally powerful argument, which is, of course, they did not circumcise him. They were going to send him off to live in the Egyptian, you know, quarters and to be raised as Egyptian royalty. They didn't want to do anything to compromise his uh, safety, right? The Lord had spared him, and they wanted to send him to live as an Egyptian. Otherwise, he'd be killed. This was his way of having his life saved. Uh, and so the question is, you know, was Moses ever circumcised? We don't have a record of it in scripture. And if, in fact, Moses was not circumcised, I think that offers a very provocative foreshadowing of the good shepherd who will identify with and bring in those who are not circumcised into the body of Christ. Um, so that's, that's another potential angle. Uh, another interesting angle is the role of Zipporah. Because who is the hero that keeps the covenant moving forward? Is it a nice law-abiding Jewish male? No, it's Zipporah, a Midianite Gentile woman who acts with faith, who takes initiative in order to act 
so that God's wrath is uh, not falling upon Moses and the Israelites will be saved. And so could it be that some positive commentary on the role of women, the role of Gentile women, the role of Midianites, uh, who will later be suspect in the Old Testament? Could there be some commentary there about God working in strange ways through strange people? We've already seen how Shipra and Pua, uh, the two midwives, were the first heroes of the book of Exodus. And now we have a Gentile woman who is, in essence, saving God's people from God himself. Very interesting. But the thing that I think is most important of all is we have circumcision, we have blood, we have the turning away of God's wrath, and we have the story moving forward. Um, we basically have a story where Moses's clan is marked by the blood of the covenant. I mean, if you really boil and strip down what's happening here, um, circumcision, blood, covenant, they all go together, and Moses and his family need to be fully marked by the blood of the covenant, uh, because the blood of the covenant is essentially what's going to save uh, God's people once we get to Passover and send them off uh, through the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, depending on how you read that, into the desert and towards the promised land. And as Christians, we talk about being saved by the blood of the covenant. And so there's a sense in which all of that could be foreshadowed in these three strange little verses. And so the story does continue. Midianite kind of, the Midianite woman saves the day. Uh, and uh, the Lord uh, is back in business speaking to Aaron, saying, go meet your brother Moses. And the two of them meet, they share a kiss, and they're all happy. Then they go to the elders, and they perform all the signs, and everyone believes. And whenever they hear that the Lord has seen their misery, they all fall down, and they worship. And so for a moment, everything is beautiful and holy and good. Uh, the story is about to get rocky, but for a moment, everyone is worshiping together and ready to go to Pharaoh.